Well, if you'd open your Bibles to chapter 34 of Psalms, Psalm 34. David wrote this psalm just after the events that we studied last week. If you remember, David is running from Saul, running literally for his life. Saul wants to kill him. In the previous chapters of 1 Samuel, last week was 1 Samuel 22. In the chapters before that, we saw that David ran to Samuel and was with the prophets who prophesied. And Saul chased him there, and even Saul had to prophesy. And in humility before the Lord, he fell face down. And then David ran to Jonathan, and Jonathan made a covenant with him, but he still could not help him. Then David ran to the tabernacle. And got the sword of Goliath and five loaves of bread to sustain him. And then in the end of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, he runs to Gath, to the king of Gath, whose name was Achish, thinking he would find safety there for some reason. Among the enemies of God's people, he thought this would be the place of safety. But they recognize him and they want to kill him. And it says that David took these things to heart. And after he took these things to heart, meaning he discerned that they were going to hurt him, he acts like a madman. He's drooling and he's acting crazy. He's eventually driven away from Achish. Driven away. And he writes this psalm, Psalm 34. After Immediately after that event, it would seem. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you of the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous 
will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated and let us pray. Our Father in heaven, what a precious and special passage this is. We love your word. And this part of your word is so encouraging. When we see David cry out to you and give you praise for your deliverance, even in the midst of his foolishness, Lord, what an encouragement for us. Lord, we thank you that your word is rich and powerful, it's sharp, and it's piercing. So encourage our hearts, pierce our hearts, bless our hearts by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, needless to say, David's trip to Gath didn't work out the way he had planned. Has that ever happened to you? You go to a place and you think, this is going to be great. And it's exactly the opposite. That happened to David. The title is The Beauty of Hardship. It's hard to remember when you read that psalm that David wrote it in the midst of great suffering and hardship. And somehow the psalm comes across as very beautiful in praise to God. I'm going to make five quick points and we're just going to cover the first four verses. We're going to look at David's foolishness as the context We'll see God's deliverance, which produces praise. We'll see the humility that comes from the hardship he encounters. How we should exalt God together. And fifthly, that we'll recount God's work. I'll mention these again as we go through if you're taking notes. But let's look first at David's failure, the situation he finds himself in. It seems extremely unwise. He's killed Goliath. He's carrying Goliath's sword, and he goes to Goliath's hometown. Certainly there were other factors involved, and we don't know them all. But this seems like it was a bad decision. It's good to remember when you read the title of a psalm. I'm not talking the titles that are put in by the people that made your Bible, but the title right next to the number 3-4 in this psalm. Most conservative theologians consider those titles to be part of the text. In the Hebrew Bible, there's no divisions between chapters and verses and titles. It's in the text. The Masoretes would call it part of the text. And that's actually an encouragement. It's the pre-verse 1 part of the text where we read the context of the psalm. David wrote this psalm. We see the heart of David in the psalm. And the the situation was when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. After last week's lesson on 1 Samuel 22, you can see why that would be so important to understanding what David is saying In this particular song, David wrote it on that particular occasion. And that's special. That's special to know. Abimelech is another name for Achish, probably a title for Achish. It means father the king. Father is king, something like that. Regardless, this is clearly Achish. 
And we see that it's important for David. David may have written the title himself, we don't know. But we see it's important for David to know, or for us to know, that David changed his behavior. He pretended to be mad. He pretended to be disabled. To get away. He used a form of deception, which seems, at least to John Calvin and many other theologians, it seems clearly wrong that he did this. The ends don't justify the means in this particular instance. And we should not rush to approve David's behavior. The scriptures never try to get us to approve bad behavior. It just reports the behavior. It's as if this, the reason that the title is even before the psalm is because what he did was so wrong that David wants everyone to know, even though I did this horrible thing, made this bad decision, acted like a disabled person, a mentally disabled person, to use modern English, even though I did all that, God still delivered me and I will praise him. So David in his flight from Saul shows a very human weakness I think that we can all relate to. All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would say that what David has done, I've probably done myself and maybe even much worse. Making bad decisions. Running along in our own strength. And then God still being faithful and still delivering us. Even in the midst of sin. He delivers us. And what does this produce in us? It produces what it produced in David. Praise to God. This is the second thing I want to look at. God is praised at all times. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. The Hebrew word for bless is Barak. Actually, we had a president named Bless, Barak. Although whether or not that was an oxymoron is for you to decide. But I will bless the Lord at all times. I will barak the Lord at all times. And his praise shall continually be in my mouth. What David is communicating is that all of the time he's going to bless God. And it's continuous. It's the idea that Paul says when when he tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. David says it twice as well. He feels such gratitude for the Lord's care for him. And it's especially noticed in our lives too when God abundantly and powerfully shows his mercy to us even in the midst of our bad decisions, our sin. And he still blesses us. And he's faithful to us. And it causes us to explode in blessing to God. If you're like me, though, in the midst of a trial or a hardship, it takes a minute to turn that hardship or that trial into a place of blessing, at least to proclaim God's blessing and God's praise and to rejoice. It's difficult to see through the fog. It's difficult in the tunnel to see the light at the end or in the night to remember that the sun will rise. It's difficult when you're in hardship. But David is training his heart to do that, to rejoice in the Lord always. We should also do that. Train our hearts 
When you remember God's faithfulness, train your hearts to rejoice always in the Lord. The trial may be difficult, but we can always hope in the Lord and bless the Lord. And especially after God delivered David from death and from danger, his praise is especially sweet. And it's heartfelt. We see that in verse 2. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. My soul. This is the Hebrew nephesh. And nephesh has the, the sense of, it's not like your spirit that's going to heaven after your body dies. That's not the word nephesh. It's more like the seed of your emotions and your will. Your inner self, your thoughts. He says, My soul, all that I am, makes its boast in the Lord. So he's boasting and he's praising God and he's committed to doing this continually at all times. This is a turning point, you will see in 1 Samuel, in David's life and how he acts in the midst of hardship. Right now, we have to admit that he's kind of stumbling along. We see that. I think we see that clearly. Running from this place to this place to this place to this place. What is happening here? What is going on? Well, we don't know exactly what's happening. We don't know God's intent. But we can kind of look at the situation and make some pretty sound conclusions. We know that pride and humility are things that are always in conflict in a Christian's life. In a man of God's life like David, he would still struggle with the same things that we do. He's just a man. So he goes out and kills Goliath. And he's had people singing his praises. Have you ever had someone sing your praises or cheer for you or praise you for something you've done? It's natural in the heart of man to to relish in that, to, to like that, to love that. We don't know if David became incredibly proud. If his heart is anything like mine or anything like yours, he may have been tempted to pride. But one thing we do know is God always corrects the pride of his own people with hardship. And look at David's life after that. He's raised to the court of Saul. He's the most honored of all Saul's soldiers. And then we see hardship. Nothing but hardship. Not just for a little time, for a long time. And the hardship continues after this particular event for a number of years. But this moment, there's a turn, there's a change. He seems, as we'll see in chapter 23, 24, 25, he seems to rest, of 1 Samuel I mean, he seems to rest in God, in God's providence. How do we know this? Well, there's times when Saul is right there in front of him, and he could kill Saul and claim the kingdom for himself. And he refuses to touch Saul at all. So much as his trust for God, seasoned by this time of suffering, He trusts God for all things. He's not going to strive out on his own. Certainly he's not perfect. But certainly this hardship has brought great humility in his life. And that's the third point. He says, let the humble hear and be glad. This is verse 2. Let the humble hear and be glad. 
This is a special line of the psalm, I believe, especially these first few verses. The word humble doesn't just mean everyone who's in hardship. That's not what the word means. The word humble means those who are in hardship and yet prostrate themselves before God in trust. That's the humble. When people experience trials, Christians and non-Christians, people in the church and people everywhere else in the world, many instinctively respond with pride, a prickliness when you're in hardship. You just you get hard and you kind of push away from people. Or you become angry at God even. What they don't know is that these actions actually bring more destruction to the situation than would have been there anyway. But David calls on the humble to hear and be glad. The word humble actually describes those who face trial and tribulation and turn to God. Calvin said they're cast down and they're ready to abase themselves to the dust in the midst of that trial. These are the humble. David was incredibly humbled, was he not? The stately man of the court of the king, warrior, killer of Goliath, hero of Israel, goes to the point where he's acting like a a crazy person, slobbering all over the, the city gates. And he has to continue doing this to even get out of Gath. He's been humbled. And David says, let those who are humble, the others who are humble, let the humble hear and be glad. When they remember God's faithfulness to them and see God's faithfulness to me, David says, let the humble hear it and be glad. They'll also be glad. And it seems that the extent of their trials corresponds to the exuberance of their celebration. It also seems that the extent of their trials also increases the amount of humility they have going forward in life. For this reason, we can see some goodness in hardship. Even the hardest trial, you can see that God is causing you to lean on Him. And in the big scheme of life, that's a good thing. That is the purpose. One of the main purposes of hardship is to bring about fruit in our lives, especially humility. Hardship produces Christ-likeness. So we can, in a sense, rejoice, as Paul tells us, even in suffering, even always, even as David says, at all times. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, at the end of the Beatitudes and the sermon he preached on the mountain. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. David was among the prophets who was persecuted before. Saul chased him all over Israel, but he learned to rejoice and became increasingly like his Messiah in what he suffered. Philippians 2, we read, If there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're all to be like Christ in the sense that we embrace, in a sense we embrace the hardship that God brings us because we know that it produces fruit. We know that it's being used to draw us to Christ, to humble us before man and before Christ, to make us more Christ-like. And when we're like that, we shine brightly in the world. The suffering that comes to you in life can happen for different reasons. It could just be discipline. God's disciplining you because he loves you. He loves you as a child and he's going to use the hardship to discipline you because of sin. It could just be because we live in a fallen world. There are people who are just fallen and broken and they act out. And we feel it. We could be in hardship because of persecution, because of our Christian witness. It doesn't matter. All of it is used by God to make us humble and like Christ. Yesterday, Jerry and I went to our presbytery meeting. And if I'm being completely honest with you, and I always want to be, I didn't really want to go. The week was hard. I was feeling behind. I needed to finish sermons and I needed to do this and that. And the presbytery meeting had to happen. And I knew that I should go. I wanted to do the right thing. And I do like spending time with Jerry. So we went. And as is usually the case, God blessed that event and blessed that time. And I came away feeling refreshed and thankful. And what encouraged me the most was being around so many wonderful saints who had been through the fire. And we were talking on the drive back. These are men, and Jerry's among them. He's been through the fire just four years ago. Carrying a weight that is... It's hard to imagine. And the men in the, in the presbytery have, have served some of them for 40 years and seen horrible things and been accused of horrible things and been slandered and attacked in so many various ways and felt the fire. And what usually happens, at least in churches I've been to, when a pastor feels that, he just moves. If you have any skill at all, you can get another job at another church and you go. These men don't do that. These men stay. 
They stay and they're a witness and a testimony to the grace of God. When you hear them pray, these are men who pray with a deep understanding of God's grace. These are men who are humbled by hardship. Not bitter in any way, but humbled to Christ's likeness and always willing to encourage others. What a blessing it was. And I thought the perfect illustration of what hardship should do to each one of us and what it probably did to David based on the rest of the Psalms that he wrote. So we'll bless the Lord when we've been through hardship, when we've been through the fire and come out the other side and still grasping at Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, when we are holding tight to the only thing that's solid, we'll come through the other side and bless the Lord as David did. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. We'll be loving God and loving others as Christ did. We'll be serving others as Christ did. We see that David was certainly in a divine vice grip and God is molding and shaping him into the man that he needs to be. And God sent these troubles to refine David, to make him a man after his own heart, to produce a trust and a character and a faith that would sustain him through times of great distress. So he says, let the humble hear and be glad. Already himself being humble, he wants everyone else who's been through the fire to rejoice and hear and be glad and to bless the Lord. Look at verse 3. He also talks about how this should be done together. We should bless the Lord and exalt Him together. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. He goes from I, I, I. The pronouns change. Let us exalt His name together. This is another reason we see for giving thanks to God publicly. We, we show our gratitude publicly. We share our, our praises with the congregation so that we can all be encouraged and all praise God. Reminds me of when Patty came back from the hospital. We were all praising God with Sheila, with Patty. What a wonderful blessing. So he's calling all of us to magnify Yahweh with him to exalt his name together when god answers a prayer or delivers us from something harmful or protects us from the evil one we should recount god's goodness to the whole body and all rejoice together paul says in romans 12 that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn we need that encouragement but it's instinctive for the family of god For we who are knit together by the Holy Spirit, we will. And when one member of the body is blessed, we're all blessed. When one member suffers, we all suffer. Especially when God works a powerful deliverance as He did for David. Or answers our prayers. So, David summarizes the three previous verses in verse 4, which is beautifully stated. He says, I sought the Lord. This is the point, point number five, recounting God's work. We should always recount the work of God. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. 
I was in distress and I sought the Lord. That's the first point. God, God heard him, but first he had to pray. He sought the Lord. He prayed to God. He called upon God. This is basic in our lives. I will never stop telling you to pray. You all need to pray. You need to pray every day. There should be a time of prayer. And there should just be prayers flowing up to God all the time. Whenever you feel anxious, make it a trigger for prayer. Whenever you feel like a relationship that's been strained is is about to be tested, make it a time for prayer. I've read of men who, before they drank a cup of water, they would thank God for for the water that He's put in His hand. Before they would mail a letter, they would pray for the post carrier who would touch the letter. They would pray for the recipient of the letter and everyone in between. What was going on there? These are men who are trying to turn their hearts always to prayer. David said, I sought the Lord. I prayed. Don't try to solve your problems. Pray. Pray. God will often give you the wisdom you need in the moment you need it, but we need to humbly trust God and pray. But then we see that God answered him. He heard me, he said. God answers all of your prayers, every single one. He will answer. He may not give you the answer you want, but He will answer. Whenever you feel anxious, you should pray. Your triune God is listening to your prayer. It's stupendous to think that the Creator of the universe cares about you. Think of all the little things that you don't even pray about because there's something in you that says, that's way too small, it's insignificant, I don't need to pray about that. Why not? Pray about everything. I've got this ache in my knee. It's not really that big a deal. Why have I never prayed about it? So many things that we need to be lifting up that we don't. But we should, because He hears us. And the triune God is conspiring for us, not against us. Romans 8.26, Paul says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Amen. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Have you ever come to prayer and you're just so burdened you don't even know what to say? That's okay. Just pray. The Spirit is interceding for you. And not only that, the Son is at the Father's side. Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And they're interceding to who? The Father who adopted you. You're the son of a king, you're the daughter of a king the King of the universe, who has bound Himself to His children to hear them, to care for them, to deliver them. He's your Father. Pray to Him. And He will answer. David said, He delivered me from all my fears. So David wrote this when he was still on the run. He had no way to know that he would eventually come out okay. He's still running for his life. And he says that God delivered him from all his fears. From this point on, of course, we see that David acts with greater confidence. 
following God and trusting God through this trial. Like Paul, he knows that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we should pray. In conclusion, I want to just talk to you about the beauty of this psalm as it relates to suffering. This is a cherished and beloved song for anyone, really, who reads it. The, even if you don't believe the Bible, it's a beautiful piece of prose. And it's beautiful in its construction in Hebrew as well. It's one of those special psalms where each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the verses we read today were the first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Which I should make Melody sing for us right now. Just kidding, I won't do that. She memorized the Hebrew alphabet with me in seminary and still knows it. So these are the first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and all of Psalm 34 takes us through each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, minus one. So why did David do this? Why did God inspire David to write this psalm in that way? That's interesting to think about. Was it just to show us that David's a really good poet, and he's really skillful and really smart? I'm sure that's not the case. The beauty of the language combined with the beauty of the poetry and the skill required to put those letters right where they are with the right words it says something about the beauty of David's life and the hardships and the glory of God's deliverance. The greatest hardship in life often brings the greatest beauty on the backside. If you've walked with God very long, you know that's true. And the prose that we read is a deliberate effort to reflect the glory of God's work and the exactitude of God's care for his people so we can take comfort. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have brought us to this psalm to encourage our souls to bless your holy name. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost that you would be with us and strengthen us this week that your spirit would guide and direct us, that we would increasingly turn to you in prayer, that we would rejoice always, even as David was drooling on the city gates, pretending to be a madman. I love to believe that he was rejoicing in the Lord, even in the midst of that terrible situation. Lord, may we be able to rejoice in the Lord in every situation that your praise would continually be in our mouths because we love our Savior, we love our King, and we love you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.